0: Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz
1: app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the program that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about whole school wellbeing, what that means and how it has evolved over the past decade. My guest today is Associate Professor Matthew White, who's a researcher and a program director at the Master of Education at the School of Education at the University of Adelaide. Uh, Matthew has been involved in what we call positive education since its inception. He has worked at Geelong Grammar School at St. Peter's Adelaide, and he's also a Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education. He is an active researcher and published author um, of many books. Kia ora, Matthew. We are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life.
0: Hi, no, Denise. Thank you for your warm introduction.
1: Delighted. Now, Matt, you have worked on whole school wellbeing really since its inception. How how have you seen this field grow and develop over the last 10 years?
0: Well, that's a great question, Denise. Yes, it's, um, I've been working in the field now for just over a decade. So um, I guess that it's really actually what the field that we would describe as positive education, uh, which originally was defined by... Uh, Martin Seligman and Mike Cheek sent me high originally as uh, uh, teaching for traditional skills and for happiness. I think the field's moved on quite substantially since then, but that was the original concept. Today, it's it's really changed quite substantially. I think we're starting to see the field mature. It still has quite a long way to go. Uh, But the way that I describe positive education, it's an evidence-based approach to learning and teaching, which has a positive impact on student learning outcomes and also wellbeing outcomes.
1: Great. And in order to get kind of from A to B, what are some of the big changes you've seen in how schools are doing this work?
0: Um, That's a a great question. I've been thinking about this quite a lot quite recently with um, a couple of books that I'm helping to write at the moment. So I think in the last decade, what we've seen are really actually three significant waves occurring. The first was um, a lot of energy um, and interest at the beginning of the launch of positive education, where people were really responding to the rising concerns around anxiety, depression, mental health, well-being issues within schools, and there was a natural turning towards positive psychology, well-being science as one of the parts to help fit the puzzle, to help schools to really actually start using evidence based strategies for whole school improvement in well being so that was the first sort of the wave i think in the last decade we've also seen the rise of uh, the measurement of well being just as we've seen in australia and i also know in new zealand with the rise of you know national numeracy and literacy tests we've seen conversations around should we have a, a national measurement around well being in schools uh, increasingly over the last decade schools have looked towards Evidence, data to inform professional practice, the decisions that they make in their schools around the types of pastoral care programs that they may have offered, which probably have remained unaltered for more than 100 years in some instances. Um, The third wave, which is where we're up to at the moment, um, is starting to get very interesting. A decade later, we now have uh, research which is pointing towards evidence-based and scientifically informed practices that may be able to be translated into uh, learning and teaching, uh, that may have a positive contribution to learning outcomes and also well-being outcomes. Mm. So they're the three big sort of waves that I think I've seen in the last decade.
1: And I I like that you characterize the first wave with kind of energy and enthusiasm. And I think in that kind of rush to do some good, a lot, of, a lot of people were, were looking to pull well-being programs and curricula from wherever they could find them. Um, and I think over the decade, we've seen people become um, a little more nuanced and a little more reflective in checking, does this fit my context? Is it right for my school? Does it have a good evidence base? Um, and generally becoming more discerning, haven't they?
0: yeah. And I think what we've seen, in this, which is very interesting, is that um, the first wave was primarily focusing upon educational programs, what would teachers teach, if you like. And in one sense, it was like, how do I pull a program off a shelf and deliver it in a class? That was really where the the field started to a degree. Some of the early adopters in the field used evidence-based programs, which came from psychological research, primarily in the resilience space. And increasingly, what we started to see was educational curricula being written, which had been scientifically informed or tested in in various circumstances, which aimed towards more what we would term human flourishing. And also what's very interesting, that was the sort of the first part. The second part was, I think, that the deeper philosophical questions around why this matters within learning and teaching and professional practice were, were overlooked. And so in the early days, in 2008, 9, 10, I think the field really was what I describe it as a profession in search for a practice or a pedagogy in search Mm -hmm. for a practice um, and was really actually creating the vocabulary and the pedagogical actions which actually underpin what we claim to be called positive education. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just the nature of an early starting field. Fast forward 10 years now, we have far more robust science which is starting to be able to sharpen the professional practice But we still have another wave to go. I think that's another decade ahead where we will start to see many of these advances starting to be integrated in professional practice in the classroom. And
1: that's a really welcome change because it almost felt to me at some points, you know, 10 years ago, really, that it was kind of psychology pushing on to education's turf and saying here's our program you must meet our standards um, our program fidelity requirements etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's in the last decade it's been education taking ownership of this hasn't it that and, yeah. and acknowledging how important it is for teachers to as you say for it to be part of their professional practice
0: absolutely and uh, i think you've characterized it um, very well. But um, I think, I mean, that's not uncommon. I mean, the, the rise of psychology within education is, is a phenomena which is quite widely, widely written about. Um, but definitely, I think that we started to see over the past decade some really great uh, research being published, because if this field is going to have deep traction, it needs to have publications which will shift professional practice. Otherwise, it will just burn out. Um, and Really deeply looking at the sort of the philosophical questions, my favourite go-to author on this matter is Christian Christiansen yeah. at the University of Birmingham uh, and also John Key at the University of Melbourne, who is an educational philosopher. Uh, both of them have written around, you know, what does, uh, what's the sort of Aristotelian bent on this, uh, you know, when we are um, in a classroom and the dynamic between the student and the teacher and the teacher and the student, um, how does that work? And Chris Janssen's writing is particularly powerful, and it's not really actually been widely engaged with by many in the positive education uh, movement. It is it is challenging material, I think, but very important because what Christian focuses us to ask is, as teachers, as John Hattie says, "What's my impact when I actually do this?" Um, And there are quite substantial implications when a teacher comes into a classroom to talk about well-being or character. Um, and unpack that um, and so we've started to see this shift I think in the nuance of the discussion um, what does concern me though is that there is a plethora of of uh, approaches programs out there Denise which seem to attract a lot of attention or a lot of uh, backslapping, slapping um, which really actually do not have the Sort of the educational philosophical rigor behind it in order to actually really get deep change in education systems they haven't done the ecological work um, which is required um, and it's hard' it's a, it's a, it's, it's a slow um, change in professional practice it's not a quick change i think
1: and so actually and this is this is a broader question than we might uh, I was going to ask but but I'm just curious so you know when we talk about the maturing of the field and having a, a, a deeper ecological practice, where do you think we might get to with that? Because it's, it's essentially saying, you know, if you're going to have a whole school well-being approach, it's, it has to be contextually appropriate. There has to be professional practice. If you had an ideal of where schools might get to, what might that look like?
0: Well, I think it's... Um... It's also not thinking that wellbeing is separated from other parts of school. Mm. I think in the early days, I think people got the wrong end of the stick actually a little bit where they thought it was you either focused on wellbeing and you you didn't focus on learning, whereas there were a handful of us at the beginning of the positive education field um, who were quite strongly saying, you know, it is wellbeing and learning.
1: It's Mm. not wellbeing
0: or learning. However, I think that um, one of the things that the field suffered from at the beginning was the inability to articulate that philosophically and make that really clear. Um, so there, I mean, there are very strong learning cases and there are very strong well-being cases for why you would focus upon this in schools. And they have quite distinct arguments or contentions. Um, but I think that that's actually been lost a little bit. And so for, I mean, for school leaders to actually be able to integrate this more deeply into the DNA of their school, I think that they, it's grappling with that where does the well-being part of the puzzle fit within the context of optimal learning um, and creating a community of learning? And by doing that, and by focusing upon it, you're not sacrificing learning outcomes. You can actually do both. Uh, you can teach and learn for well-being and academic mastery, academic growth at the same time, um, and. I think that's where leadership is so critical um, in school leadership and being able to commence these very important conversations in schools, Mm -hmm. Um, from the research that school principals and directors and um, heads of department are are key players in the change equation and the sustainability of of cultural change Um, and that when principals become like instructional leaders... Um, they can have really strong impact, positive impact, on student learning outcomes. And so I think there's a lot to be learnt there, and that's a a very under-researched area uh, uh, within the field. So um, there's more more research that we need to do.
1: And then presumably, Matt, because you are involved in initial teacher education as well, involved isn't the right word when you've written the programme. So... Obviously, that's another area that you feel very strongly about in terms of if this field is going to have sustainability, how are we going to um, equip the next generation of teachers coming through? What are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, so um, uh, at the University of Adelaide, we've been grappling with this question for over 18 months now. Um, And uh, my colleague, Professor Faye McCallum, who is our head of school, her expertise is teacher wellbeing. So she's one of the five OEC, OECD consultants who are currently developing a measure for teacher wellbeing across the world. Um, and one of the really concerning elements around Australian pre-service teacher experience is that over 53% of graduating teachers will leave the profession within the first five years of employment. And they're not leaving just to you know start up a small business and come back again. They're leaving education Forever. entirely. Um, and this is a, a very serious concern and it's being replicated across the world in different, uh, in different countries around, around the status of the profession. And so one of the big challenges that we know is that, for example, with initial uh, pre-service teachers when they graduate, is that they're thrust into, from, from the environment of the university into the complexity of the school. Um, and to some degree, some of them can be overwhelmed by, you know, a complexity of literacy, numeracy rates, increased diversity within schools. There's a whole raft of issues. And then on top of that, and whilst they're trying to teach Year 10 history or Year 8 maths or Year 9 English, they'll have wellbeing issues and they feel very underprepared potentially to actually manage, not solve, manage the wellbeing issues which are present within their classrooms or beyond.
1: So, Matthew, switching to your experience in schools, because you have worked for such a long time, both with, um, mainly with St. Peter's and Adelaide, but also with Geelong Grammar, and what were your big insights and learnings there in terms of the the design and implementation of whole school well-being?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really good question, Denise. Um, it's like I know it's a,
1: too big. I'm, kind of I'm sorry. It's a
0: golden egg, isn't it? Um, I think my biggest takeaway is that approaches need to be culturally and contextually specific. Mm -hmm. I I look at um, people who have high enthusiasm in the field and they think they can almost cut and paste and replicate something without doing the deep culture work that's required around the core values of different types of schools. So, Um, Sure, you can look at best practice and and take away elements, but it's always got to be culturally and contextually specific. The other uh, sort of major takeaway is it is really important to engage um, parents, teachers, students around the science and the evidence and presenting this as an Mm evidence-based professional practice and really leaning in on that. Um, I think that that's one of the most powerful things out of all of this that can take place. Um, And also um, the really important thing is to to be patient for outcomes. So um, I, I argue that it is possible if you take an ecological approach to this, a whole systems approach, that you may see some evidence of impact by year three, year five. But it takes time because this is a deep cultural shift in approach. And the other one which I've been thinking about quite a lot um, is really engaging teachers in particular around the professional practice of this. What do they actually do? Um, So it's one thing to talk about wellbeing education, it's another thing to do it, and they are closely related. Um, And I think that's a really important tension. Um, I get concerned where I hear these really simple slogans that try to explain Um, well-being education because it's not a slogan Um, and I get really concerned around, you know, these sort of monosyllabic statements because if I was a student, you know, being taught like that, my natural inclination would be to completely stop listening to what you're saying. Um, (laughs) And so I always think that any conversation around well-being education is an invitation. You're being invited to talk about character, you're being invited to talk about your strengths, that you know, this is the discussion about the complexity of human motion and your interpretation. And let's look at some evidence. Let's drill down on it, and let's focus upon how this might make you a better person. How it might help you to support your friends and to support yourself to become a better contributor to society. Um, and that's not going to work if you go in and with you know one one if you're only tool is a hammer, then every problem you're going to see is a nail. Yeah. And so I d- I do worry that. Um, in the zest that some schools rush towards this material, that they go in with only, well, only one sort of strategy mm. and um, they lack the nuance of being able to do this.
1: And what you're describing there, Matthew, as well, also speaks to student voice, student engagement, student agency mm. in this work.
0: Student um, voice is absolutely critical, um, Denise. Mm. Um, I think that one of the great challenges with wellbeing education it gets done to young people, um, and so being able to um, involve them as much in the process um, because it's their well-being after all. I mean, there are some really interesting case studies of this which are starting to emerge in Australia where student have voice has been placed at the centre of the conversation more explicitly than it was, say, 10 years ago. Um, and then I think also one of the other really important things is around measurement. Um, I think that measurement serves a purpose to be able to... Um, uh, sharpen strategy, it's evidence to be able to track improvement uh, and also changes to programs um, and it's feedback, which is critical um, for schools to be able to um, shift their approach um, and be able to track seriously what they're doing. I mean, we measure all sorts of things. Um,
1: and so, you know, I know there has been a lot of progress over the last decade, but clearly um, we're not there yet. Um, and there's other work to be done. So as you look at the landscape now, what are the things that concerns you and what kind of things you want to do to address some of these concerns?
0: So, I think one of the things that concerns me is that when we look at, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher now at a university, but when I look at educational research, is that there is a disconnection between what principals teachers experience in the schools with rising levels of anxiety, depression, complexity of the classroom increasing. And that's been widely recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we look towards educational research and there is an absence of focus on evidence-based approaches to well-being in educational research. Um, so when we look towards the really big research conferences or the really big research meetings, like, for example, the American Education yeah. Research Association or the Australian one or the New Zealand one, or um, we go to the British or the European one, this issue, which seems to be so, power- so important in schools, and this is reported by school leaders, is not necessarily getting the same attention in education, uh, educational research. Yeah. And I don't know why. Um, it's something which I'm trying to understand better. Um, but there are I'm working with some colleagues in particular to systematically focus upon this to help shift the discourse. I think one of the challenges is that, as you said, right at the beginning of this conversation, Denise, primarily positive education came out of psychology and then it was imposed on education. And then so really all the major publications are in psychological journals as opposed to educational journals. So case in point, Marty Seligman's 2009 journal article published in the Oxford Review of Education, there's only been 10 years later another article on that topic 10 years later, which is actually around hey, you've forgotten about the philosophy, but it took 10 years to be published. And you sort of ask yourself why, because this is a significant issue that is taking Mm. place within schools. And I think it's the big challenge in the next 10 years is to be able to really actually bring into educational research this topic more fully. Mm. I think one of the challenges is the the name Positive Education.
1: It's terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And um, um, I don't actually really write about it very much at the moment. I write about more well-being, education and have a more okay. holistic view. I haven't written about that for probably about three years. But, um, it, it, yeah, it has a has a particular block, I think, for people. Yeah. Uh, and um, we need to mature the field. Perhaps that's going to be... Perhaps when we have our conversation in a couple of years' time, the field might have changed a bit.
1: But I like the idea. I, like, I, I kind of welcome the idea of... Um, well-being in education not being a silo topic that's kind of really coming out of psychology but absolutely um a mainstream focus in education in terms of thinking about professional practice um teacher well-being as well as the complexity of working in schools
0: mm-hmm. so i'm quite optimistic that this this will happen mm-hmm. um, i just think it's um it's uh, it requires a lot of discipline from the field to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in particular, it requires a lot of public, a lot of research that needs to be undertaken. Mm-hmm. So um, if if any schools are listening to our podcast, I'd really strongly encourage them to partner with your local university, reach out to academics in the field um, because we're uh, academics are always looking to partner uh, on research to better student outcomes
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, And um, it would be a great contribution to the field as well.
1: And so in terms of kind of learning and advice, if if schools are listening, um, what would be some of the advice that you'd want to pass on to them? Because I know we've spoken about the importance of contextualising this work for a school. But over and above that, are there any levers for change that are so important that you think we can say yes to any school kind of? um focusing on them.
0: It always boils down to um I think it was Lee Waters who first published it, um around the learning case and the well being case. Um so there is a very, you know, strong learning case for why well being matters. Having, you know, there is a paper which was written by my colleague Faye McCallum in twenty ten which she calls Well Teachers, Well Student. It's the two sides of the coin of the teacher wellbeing and the student well being. Um, And so I think one of the big things that schools can focus upon is actually starting the conversation, Denise, and looking for scientifically informed publications which actually are a starting point for a conversation. Um, One of the most powerful things that school communities can do is to sit down and look at evidence and discuss it and focus relentlessly on learning and wellbeing. And the start of that conversation will flow through into professional practice. And that can be really powerfully led by principal, assistant principal, directors of learning uh, in schools. Um, But it is one of the most important things because we know that, you know, teachers are the number one in-school factor for student outcome. Um, Mm. And when they also focus collectively on professional learning, which is really intentional linked to their school strategy, I think it has an impact. Um, And asking, how do I know if I'm having an impact about that? Getting someone in to, to see what they're doing to see their professional practice overall and how they're promoting that within schools. So that will be a first step. I think one of the most exciting things that I've recently read in the field is the work that Lee Waters and Dan Loughton have just published, which is the largest meta-analysis of what actually works in wellbeing education. It's taken 10 years to get there, but it's probably the most important publication of 2019 in our field. Um, it's the search for meta- This is
1: a search framework, yeah
0: But it is a meta-framework Not only for research in the field But also for how this could be Used within schools Whereas if we compare that With other frameworks They're a good guess So this is the most comprehensive Meta-analysis of the field Looking towards a whole raft Of published peer-reviewed papers Which got in there, uh, into it And uh, I'm sure you'll put a link to it At the end of our program. Oh, we do, yeah Mm -hmm. Um, but um, it is a very important paper, um, which I think will take a few people a while to work out what it actually means. Um, I'm going to put my sort of neck out and say I think it's as important as John Hattie's work around visible well-being from when that was first published, uh, visible learning, sorry, when that was first published, Um, and because it is a potential game-changer. The challenge will be how principals, teachers, education researchers engage with that framework within educational Mm -hmm. discourse.
1: Mm -hmm. But it really really does offer the potential, doesn't it, to have a framework that isn't necessarily tied to any programs, any curricula from anywhere else, but Mm -hmm. let you say, how can we design something? How can we make sure that what we're doing in our school is covered off. You know, are we addressing these factors, and yeah. how could we use them to um, to get more traction?
0: So I think it's a it's a major contribution mm. to our field. Mm. Um, so I'm calling it early, um, but I think that it will become a very important paper as people start to really grapple with the implication of it, and it will have an impact on professional practice ultimately mm. um, uh, as as the field matures. Uh, and we move beyond the sort of the high enthusiasm and low science approach, which was characteristic of the first couple of years in some pockets of practice.
1: And Matthew, in all the work that you have done in the last decade, what are you most proud of in the work you've done on wellbeing?
0: I think for me, the greatest meaning that I had out of the research and the work and the leadership and the, and the contribution was two things. First of all it was at St Peter's College Adelaide was seeing how colleagues embraced, criticised, lent in and created the wellbeing approach which is still present at St Peter's College Adelaide to the point where there were two significant research books which had an impact on the whole area published. That was a big contribution to the field. Secondly also though is, is quite specific Denise it was my last year at St Peter's College Adelaide before I joined the University of Adelaide um, in my current role, um, the Year 12 group, the final group there, um, they were the boys who were at the beginning of the introduction of wellbeing. So those boys had been taught wellbeing positive education principles from Year 6 right through. And so for me was right towards the end seeing these boys, 17, 18 year old young men, talking about it was okay not to be okay and they were able to talk about their character strengths with a level of sophistication and also just thinking it was normal to do that, um, that they were able to navigate through various elements of wellbeing, education and science critically, um, that they created their own initiatives and that had huge, huge impact on me personally and um, seeing how those young men left that school um, with those skills. So that was absolutely for me probably the most meaningful part of it. So and many of them I'd known since they were in year six mm. but by the time they leave when they're 18 just when they're about to traverse that you know that third decade of their life where things do get a bit choppy they knew and understand their friends better they had a better understanding of their own character strengths and their own well-being they were able to more comprehensively recognise when somebody else was not 100% and had strategies to be able to help that. And also they were coming up with the really creative and innovative ways of promoting wellbeing within the school. And I know that many of them who've left have gone on and done very interesting things in their communities, which have been influenced by that as well. So that's probably...
1: That's lovely. That is really lovely. Um, So, Matthew, two final questions. If you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being in other people, what would it be?
0: I'd love to be involved in being able to come up with a public health campaign that educates people to understand the importance of their well-being in the same way that we understand that sunscreen is essential not to get burnt. Um, it's really
1: effective population well-being
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to to be able to crack that that challenge, which I think is a really big one in Australia, we had a, um, a anti uh, skin cancer um, uh, promotion which was called slip slop slap yeah. It was from the 1980s. everyone remembers it still um, and we need the equivalent of that for wellbeing yeah. We haven't got it.
1: Lovely. Lovely. And I know my colleague Lucy Hone will be cheering in the background as she is another person who is really passionate about population well-being. So um, tell us, what's your personal go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being? You know, when you get frustrated or down, what works for you?
0: I go for a walk. (laughs) I've just recently rediscovered the joys of walking. sort of uh, more than anything. So that, for me, it's, it's going for a walk, which I did this morning, actually.
1: Oh, um, lovely. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? We do, we, we spend our lives working on these complex whole school approaches and research, and it's important to remember that sometimes it's the, it's the really small stuff that kickstarts things for us. Absolutely. Lovely. Matthew, it's been a delight to talk to you, and I guess what I'm really holding in my head right now is the... The importance of education as a field, owning well-being, owning the research, owning the challenges that are presenting in schools, and, um, and, and that ownership going through to schools owning their own well-being, um, making it contextual, making it relevant for their values. And, and all of us enjoying a critical engagement with this work, um, checking the evidence and really really getting to grips with it in a deeper way to be able to see how it's going to work for us and how we can use it Mm. effectively for mastery and teaching and learning. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Denise. Lovely.
1: It's been delightful to have you here and to talk with you. Thank Thank you very much. Thanks, Denise. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on RFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the latest research and practice in school well-being, join us at the Wellbeing in Education Conference in Christchurch from the 2nd to the 4th of April and Auckland from the 6th to the 7th of April 2020. For more information, go to nziwr.co.nz or conference.co.nz forward slash wenz20.